0: So hello folks, this is Phil Jesson, Graham Jones and I'm Simon Hazeldean for saleschatshow.com. The three musketeers have gathered again to talk about things that are vitally important for the modern sales professional and today we're taking a look at something that might be seen as old school but does it have a place in what we might call new school selling? So overcoming objections. Are we talking about some outdated American book from the 1920s about how you wrestle the customer's objection to the floor and triumphantly close the sale? Or does it have some relevance to the modern sales professional? So the the man in the hot seat for this one is Phil. Phil, overcoming objections. Right way to describe it?
1: Certainly not. No, I am in the camp of handling objections, Simon, and um, uh, the first thing I would like to say about it is I think that when a customer or a prospect raises an objection, uh, it's often the first sign of buying interest, Uh, and objections are often the prospect's attempt to modify or improve our proposal, not to blow it out of the water. So that would be my starting comment. What are your thoughts on it? Well,
0: yeah, I think I often don't call them objections when I'm working with salespeople and working with clients. I sometimes call them concerns, that the client may have a genuine concern or a consideration even. I'm slightly uncomfortable with the old school objection as though we're in a fight with the customer to try to submit them into the sale, which is the feel of some of the classic sales training. Yeah. that is that is out there, yeah. and also the other thing I would chuck in, they're often, they sign that the client is now starting to negotiate with you, because mm. they are actually f- intending to go ahead with the purchase, or at least considering it seriously, and they don't want to look too happy and comfortable, because then they're concerned the price will go up. Yeah. So that's yeah. a kind of a, that's a thought from me.
1: Yeah, uh, I think the old school way of dealing with objections, and we've all been on these training courses, is down the left hand side of the page. You have a list of likely objections, and on the right-hand side of the page, you have your scripted response ready to go. Mm. Uh, And what that two-column approach uh, seems to ignore completely is that uh, there's something in between the two. Uh, There's something in between hearing the objection and delivering a response. And um, I can um, demonstrate that very clearly by sharing with you guys Uh, an objection-handling technique from the world's greatest expert in the subject, uh, my daughter, (laughs) and uh, at the time that she delivered this technique, she was four. So, the scene is this, gentlemen, there we are, family bath time. Daughter says to me, can I watch the TV programme on uh, on tonight about the monkeys? And I said, no. And she said, uh, what's wrong with that? Why can't I watch the programme? And I said to her, Becky, you know what's going to happen. You'll watch the TV programme, you'll go to bed late, you'll wake up in the morning grumpy, who will your mother moan at? Me, so no, get in the bath. Uh, To which she said, um, well, is that the only reason why I can't watch it? And I said, yes, that is the only reason why you can't watch it, get in the bath. Third question, she said, and um, what if mum says it's okay? Will you change your mind? At which point I said, I'm more than happy to reconsider my position, should your mother agree. So with that, she comes down the stairs at rocket speed. Two minutes later, uh, comes charging back up the stairs, saying, Mum says it's OK. So there you have the effective objection handling technique. It's around three what questions. What's the issue? What else is stopping us? What if I sorted? it? will you go ahead? And the clever thing about daughter's technique, of course, is that I said yes before she put the work in. I said, yes, if your mother says it's okay, more than happy to. At which point she decides to put the work in. So if you relate that to a commercial environment, very often, of course, the customer will say, "No, I've got a few concerns about the price, tell me a bit more about that, and they will. Uh, followed by that second question, is that the only thing holding us up? No, there's that nasty service issue from two years ago. We haven't forgotten that. Anymore? No, it's just those two concerns. What if I was able to reassure you about the price and move on that slightly? And what if I was able to demonstrate to you that the issue that came up two years ago cannot happen today with our current processes and practices. If I did those two things to your satisfaction are you telling me that you'd give us the business or give us half the business or whatever the uh, commitment area is that we're looking for? So golden rule for me, what, what else what if? That's the middle column on the page in between hearing the objection and coming out with some rehearsed, scripted response.
0: Yeah, because I think the days the days of slickly uh, composed sales scripts have probably passed. I I will often say when I'm working with salespeople, I don't mind mini scripts in terms of what I mean by structure or phraseology yeah. that can be quite useful to to to, to to prompts to yeah. practice. But when it's very scripted, I think it lacks it lacks any genuine feel, and I think the modern switched on business buyer and also the modern consumer is extremely
2: cynical to that yeah. sort of that sort of nonsense you see your daughter wasn't raising any objection at all and neither is anybody who we think is raising an objection because what your daughter was doing is what every person buying is doing is they're testing you to see how much you're interested in them so deep within our psyche is that what we want people to do is be interested in us yeah. so objections are raised in order to test you to see how interested you are in having them as a customer mm-hmm. so one of the reasons why sales fail is because we haven't demonstrated to the customer how much we're interested in them mm. and so they raise an objection because they're just saying come on then prove to me you're interested in me mm. Mm. and if you go well I'm sorry that's our lowest price you're really saying, well, actually, I'm not interested in you. I'm going somewhere else. So mm. they're not going to buy from you. No. So it's not an objection. It's a test. It's mm. a test of how interested mm. you are in them as a person, as a business. It's a it's a little psychological test that we all play.
1: That's interesting because we started with the word objection. You've changed it to concerns. Mm-hmm. Simon Graham's changed that to test. So yeah. there's an interesting uh, uh, and thing going on. And there, I, th- th-
0: I think as well it's... <clears throat> Um, It was in response, I was interviewed a couple of years ago by a journalist for the online version of the Wall Street Journal, and the question, the article she was getting some sort of input for was, what should you do if the sale starts to go down the toilet? And to some degree I said sometimes there's not a lot because you've screwed up earlier in the sales process so sometimes objections concerns push back to whatever we have which I think links to what Phil said and Graham has said is you've not done your job earlier in the process Mm. now that's not to say that not having any is feasible or realistic but I think you should challenge yourself if you're getting a lot coming up then maybe you need to go upstream to work out what you've not done to either let the customer know you're interested or have correctly
1: articulated what you're selling in terms of what it means mm. what it means to the customer. I think that's a good point. I can certainly think of occasions where clients have said to me, the sales team need an objection handling course, but you're quite right. What's gone wrong is mm. the uh, further upstream bad questions, inappropriate questions, yeah. poor listening, poor summarising, uh, the wrong solutions, and guess what, uh, mm. customer or prospect then raises mm. an objection in inverted commas.
0: But there are, some, there are some structures, I think I would prefer to call them, or some approaches rather than techniques that, that are or can be, can be quite effective, as, as outlined by, by Phil. And one that is, is very, very old-fashioned, and as in it's been around for quite some time, is the concept of feel, felt and found as a, as a, as a process for handling it. Um, so the concept is, um, you know, you're very, you're very expensive. Is the objection? For example, I understand how you feel, Mr. Customer, and other other customers who buy from us now um, felt exactly the same way until they found that the value that our product or service offers more than compensates for the slight price premium. And although that can be used as a technique, if you look at it, if you look at it slightly differently with a modern pair of eyes. Um, feel empathises with the customer, it says, yes, I understand, I, I, I empathise with what you're saying, I may not, I may not agree with you, but I understand why you are saying that. Then felt, now there's two things with the felt. One is, it pushes it linguistically into the past tense, so you're moving from, you feel like this, felt as in the implication, you will probably feel the same thing but also it actually does the Robert Cialdini social proof. Robert Cialdini, professor of psychology, the book Influence, um, social proof that human beings will often use the behavior of other human beings to guide their behavior. It shows that other people like you felt in the same way, mm. and then it also double social proofs in terms of found. They found, customers like you found that. And although that is old, and that has been around a long time, I think if you use that intelligently and you don't have to use the words feel, felt, and found. I hear what you're saying, Mr. Jones. Yeah. A number of other customers have expressed the same. It's nice language. And then language. they discover. And, nice it, it's, it's, it, it, and i And I had a beautiful occasion on a sales training where a a very old, experienced, crusty sales veteran said to me...
2: "Why are well, you at me mean you say
0: that? <laughs> I was just glancing in your direction as a, <laughs> as a sales veteran. And, and the salesperson said, that's a load of old crap. He said, that would never work. And I literally said to him in the training... Yeah, I hear. I hear what you're saying. You know, you're not the first experienced person who said that to me. What they often do is take it away and try it and find out it actually works. And he went, "Yeah, I guess so." And the rest of the room collapsed <laughs> in fits of, in fits of laughter. So, uh, Marvelous. Um, but the,
2: the real objection that most salespeople worry about is a price objection. Absolutely. So the, they're worried that you know they come in and pitch the price, and the person's going to go, you know, too expensive. That kind of thing. But mm. actually, all the studies show that is an unrealistic fear. Because when you ask people how much would you pay for this item or this service, they always quote prices higher than the company is likely to charge them. So every salesperson is inevitably going to be going in at a lower price than the company would be expecting to pay. Mm. So fearing the price objection is an unrealistic position to be in Mm. because it ain't going to happen. Now, there might be a budget exception, but that's Mm. the difference to a price uh, objection. I think another
1: interesting thing about the price area um, is to pre-handle it so it doesn't actually pop up as an Mm. objection. And I had an interesting joint visit with a salesperson years ago where I learned from him the value of pre-handling the objection. And he went in to see the customer Uh, And uh, this was a a guy selling capital equipment, and uh, he basically said, uh, our kit is about 30% more expensive than anything else that you'd look at. But there are three very good reasons for that. And he then went on to explain what the three very good reasons were. So clearly, having told the customer it was more expensive than a competitor's product, uh, the customer is not going to say bloody hell, that's more expensive than your competitors because it's been pre-handled in a confident manner. That was a salesperson who was not mumbling and talking quietly when he got to price. He was loud and proud with it and was able to justify it and which convert it into value. Which I think is probably one of the only ways you should
0: deal with that premium pricing position. You know, I mean, I will often say to salespeople, because they all they all, I say as a generalisation, they all seem to struggle with this and be concerned with this, is that I can't think of a market-leading company, I am sure there must be an exception, but I cannot think of a market-leading company in any industry who are the cheapest in that industry. Market leaders will tend to be at least comparable pricing yeah. to their competition, in if, 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 not, if not at the premium end of the pricing. Yeah, so people
2: often don't realise that Amazon, for instance, is one of the more expensive online shops. Okay. So there are far cheaper suppliers of many of the things they sell, but actually they're
1: the market leader of online retail. They're Mm. not the cheapest by any means. Give me an example of that, uh, Graham, because I'm I'm sitting here looking a bit surprised by you saying that.
2: my book that's on sale at Mm. the moment... Your famous book. My famous (laughs) book. (laughs) It's on sale at the moment. Is 12 is £12.99 in a bookshop at full price. On Amazon it's £10.39 but I can buy it from another online shop myself for £6.99. And so there are other online shops that sell much lower than, than Amazon, mm. but Amazon is the market leader. It is not necessarily the cheapest. So we market leaders are frequently the most expensive. So people mm. make the assumption that online Amazon must be cheap, but actually it isn't. Its design makes you think it's cheap. Yeah. It's a bit like pound shops have you you guys ever been into a pound shop? I, you, I may you, have you occasionally been in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: I know somebody. Who you know somebody me. who's been in one. Yeah, <laughs> but,
2: but those pound shops are they the tidiest, smartest shops on the high street? Nope. No. they're pretty scruffy, really, in terms mm. of retail, because they want you to think a pound is cheap. Mm. But actually, you can buy in in Stoke near where I live. There's a pound shop immediately opposite a leading high street um, toiletries and <laughs> pharmacy retailer. Yeah? Yeah. And in both shops, you can buy a 250ml um, pump soap. And uh, of course, in the pound shop, it's one pound. The same brand of soap is available in that leading high street retailer directly opposite... But in a beautifully arranged shelving, beautifully lit, all, you know, all the wonderful things of good retail at 79 pence. The reason we buy it in that cheap shop is because we think we're getting a bargain. So Amazon makes you think you're getting a bargain, but actually it's market leading with higher prices. So we shouldn't worry about price objection. It's not really an objection. It's really a test of how good are you. Mm-hmm. So we, the, that's what they're, they're trying to test you. And I think you're pre-dealing with it. Yeah. Often when I'm speaking to businesses about consultancy, I will talk about another client that I've worked with. And then I'll drop into the conversation you know, something that I've done for them as a bit of extra. And then I'll say, but of course, when you're paying X amount a day for somebody like me, you expect that kind of service. Mm. And already the customer I'm talking to now knows how much I'm likely to charge them per day. Yes. So and if the conversation way. continues, when I get to the end and I say that's going to be 10 days of my time, mm. yeah. they know what they're going to be paying.
1: Yeah. And you'd see their reaction on their face client, as you yeah. say it. Mm.
0: And if you have good rapport and a good relationship with your client, if the client is themselves selling products that are a, more of a premium price, mm. it's perfectly, I think, good idea to draw their attention to that fact. Yes. So that seems quite expensive. You could then say, "Yes, and so are your products." <laughs> they will see, but they give they give good value. The final final thought for which I say to salespeople um, is that if they are a buyer, when a salesperson is being a buyer themselves, if they're buying something of significant value such as a car or a house or double glazing or whatever or Graham's book. Or Graham's book, absolutely very highly highly valuable book um, <laughs> not expensive, high value um, is, Available from all leading <coughs> stores on Graham's garage And Graham hasn't mentioned the title yet, which we'll give him a chance to do right near the end, because we like shameless blokes on saleschatshow.com is that what do you say when you're a salesperson, I say to salespeople, what do you do when the person you're buying from states a price? They say, well, I say something like, oh, that's expensive. You'll have to do better than that. And then you're surprised when your own customers do that. It could be the best news in the world that they have started negotiating with you, which means your sale has succeeded. And we're now talking about how much they are going to pay for the product. So not something necessarily to panic about. And, And the book that you mentioned, Graham, was... Uh, <laughs> I think we've run out of time, Simon, of time, but, exactly. so,
1: we'll come back to that on another day. <laughs>
0: so those of you that are now wondering what on earth Graham's book is, will have to leave you in a state of permanent curiosity. <laughs> this has been Phil Jessen, Graham Jones and Simon Hazeldean for the saleschatshow.com.